1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
2: This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup, brought to you by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Here's correspondent Allison Keyes.
3: Coming up, one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, sending the abortion battle to the states. My body, my choice, her life is her life. A tragedy under the sea as the Titanic submersible implodes, killing everyone aboard.
4: There was a catastrophic event.
3: In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a new report about anti-LGBTQ plus hate.
5: There's been over 356 cases of harassment, vandalism, and assault.
3: I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Saturday marks one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, leaving a shut. Check- Board of laws around the country. Some 25 million women now live in states that have banned or severely restricted abortion. We begin our team coverage with CBS's Caitlin Huey Burns, who joins us with more on the political fight.
6: It's been a real, real animating issue for Republicans as as they've tried to, you know, seek to reform the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Eventually, um, they got that result uh, a year ago. Um, and now the, the consequences politically have been very interesting as they try to navigate this now that it is back to the states. And we've seen Democrats really uh, take on to this issue and mobilize their base of support in ways that they it really didn't uh, in the years before. Um, so what we're seeing now, now that this decision was kicked back to the states a year ago, um, it's really a patchwork of laws across the country. Depending on you know your access to abortion depends on the state in which you live. Um, we've seen red states pass restrictions. We've seen blue states pass laws codifying Roe into um, into their constitutions or into law. And uh, really, um, it's kind of a mix around the country. And I think the biggest question is kind of how this shapes um, our politics moving forward and political races, especially heading into this next presidential election.
3: I've also got to ask you, I know that you were in the Mississippi Delta, and they were Mm -hmm. talking about how it has really hurt health care down there in a state that already had the highest maternal mortality rate in in the nation
6: well we were in mississippi when the supreme court decision came down and mississippi was at the center of that landmark ruling um it, the last clinic in the state um had shuttered and um you know that was a state that we wanted to return back to to see How how is the state faring? Because when we were on the ground there, when the Supreme Court decision came down, healthcare workers were telling us that this was a state that wasn't prepared for the consequences of more women bringing babies to term. It already had the highest infant mortality rate in the country. It had one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country. Uh, There was a new report out this year showing that um, that had worsened pre-pandemic. Um, And, you know, they had really been battling really tough statistics, um, you know, ranking low in terms of low birth weight and and resources for women and children. So the question was, now that this has been outlawed or banned in the state, what is the state doing to help pregnant women and mothers? Because when you look across the South, um, most of the states have implemented or passed some kind of restriction. And what we found was that these problems for pregnant women and mothers and their babies and children still persist. These are long-standing problems, not just because of the overturning of Roe, but uh, the overturning of Roe really kind of exacerbated these issues. And what we found was, um, you know, the statistics still remain. Uh, The Republican governor has signed a series of bills into law that he has described as promoting a culture of life. They provide some tax incentives for adoption, for donating to pregnancy centers. Um, He also expanded Medicaid coverage for up to one year postpartum, which is important. But a lot of people we talked to on the ground just said that, you know, the kind of policy isn't keeping up with the challenges um, that still persist. And in a state like Mississippi, the Delta, the poorest region in the state, one of the poorest regions in the country, um, the NICU unit uh, closed over the past year. There um, three labor and delivery units across the state have also closed. Uh, there's, there are maternal uh, health care deserts, women driving you know, a couple of hours to seek care. And so that is a huge problem in the state. And we talked to a few different people who are trying to kind of step in and help. One was the Diaper Bank of the Delta. They've seen an increase in demand and donations. And then another um, OBGYN we spoke with in Jackson, Mississippi, started a program to help train emergency workers to help deliver babies in these rural areas. And those kinds of things are, you know, doing what they can to help a longstanding problem.
3: CBS's Caitlin Huey Burns. Now there's a possible crisis coming in women's health care as some medical students decide what and where to practice based on a state's abortion laws. Erin
7: Duffy is a third year med student in Florida, but this is not where the future OBGYN
8: wants to be a doctor. Unless things change, it wouldn't be my first choice to practice. Here. What about other restrictive states, Texas, yeah. elsewhere? It's just not environment I really want to be in. Students
7: like Duffy are increasingly steering clear of OBGYN residencies in states with abortion bans. Applicants in those states plummeted more than 10 percent since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Some are deciding to avoid the specialty altogether, worried about the ability to practice evidence-based medicine.
8: There's also the big concern of the possibility of being legally prosecuted. He's coming in Thursday morning.
7: Dr. Nicole Scott is the director of the OBGYN residency program at Indiana University School of Medicine. Says she's already seen a drop in
8: applications. What I'm specifically worried about is the retention of those doctors once they're finished training and their practice after residency. And that puts
7: the health of all women at risk as ob also screen for cancer, perform well woman exams and prescribe contraception. This really isn't just about
8: abortion access.
7: Dr. Are Amelia Huntsberger was doing that I in Idaho, where most
8: abortions know. are banned. It's very clear that Idaho is no longer a safe place to practice medicine.
7: The OBGYN is leaving for neighboring Oregon after her rural hospital closed its maternity unit, citing in part staffing and Idaho's political climate.
8: If I'm an OBGYN resident coming out of residency and I'm looking around at different options, why would I look at Idaho and say, oh, I really want to move there to the state where I could be charged with a felony before providing medical care?
7: Current doctors leaving and new ones practicing elsewhere, leading to labor pains in women's health care. Janet in CBS
3: News, Orlando. Coming up, worries over the coming child care cliff.
2: to 500-500 on the CBS News
3: Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. There are many questions now after the Coast Guard reports that Titanic submersible that vanished Sunday on its way to visit the shipwreck imploded, killing all five aboard. An international team of rescuers scoured the sea only to find debris from the vessel not far from the Titanic. Now a search for the cause and concerns about what some are calling a risky hull design. CBS's Roxana Sabarian.
4: There was a catastrophic
9: event. The international rescue effort now turns to recovery. The debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. After crews found five major pieces of debris from Ocean Gate's Titan submersible, about 1,600 feet from the Titanic shipwreck Thursday.
4: This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there.
9: A naval official told CBS News the Navy detected a noise consistent with an implosion shortly after the Titan first lost contact on Sunday, and that the banging sounds a Canadian aircraft had detected on Tuesday and Wednesday were actually from other ships in the area.
10: Ocean Gate shouldn't have been doing what it was doing. I think that's pretty clear. I wish I had been more vocal about that, but I think I was unaware that they weren't certified uh, because I wasn't really studying it.
9: James Cameron, director of the movie Titanic and an underwater explorer, has made more than 30 dives to the wreckage site.
10: It's not lost on me as, as somebody who's studied the, the meaning of Titanic, that it's about warnings that were ignored. That ship's lying at the bottom of the ocean, not because of the nature of its steel or the nature of its compartments, but just because of bad seamanship. The captain was warned. There were icebergs ahead, it was a moonless night, and he plowed
9: ahead. All five people on board the Titan are presumed dead. It's unclear if their bodies will ever be recovered. In a statement, Oceangate said it is grieving deeply over this loss. The Coast Guard said while it will continue to investigate the event, it's now starting to demobilize some of the search effort. Roxana Saberi, CBS News, Boston.
3: The United Nations commented on both the submersible tragedy and the overcrowded fishing boat that sank off of Greece last week, carrying some 700 people. Pakistan said Friday that some 350 people from that nation were aboard the boat when it sank June 14th. Officials say the victims paid smugglers up to $8,000 for the voyage. U.N. spokesman Farhan Haq says all lives matter. All of those who are risking their lives at sea, must uh, must be protected. The FTC is suing Amazon, accusing it of deceptive practices with customers over its Prime membership.
11: Prime members get holiday deals before anyone else. Prime is a major moneymaker for Amazon. It has more than 200 million subscribers worldwide who pay fees generating $25 billion in annual revenue. But now the Federal Trade Commission is targeting the company for allegedly using what it calls manipulative, coercive, or deceptive practices known as dark patterns to gain subscribers and to keep them. In a heavily redacted filing, the FTC alleges Amazon tricked and trapped non-Prime customers into unknowingly signing up for the service during the checkout process by, quote, presenting them with a prominent button to enroll in Prime and a comparatively inconspicuous link to decline. It also claims Amazon made it very difficult to navigate canceling a Prime subscription. With a four-page, six-click, and 15-option process, the FTC says Amazon called Iliad after the nearly 16,000-line ancient poem.
2: Prime Day is almost here.
11: The filing also alleges Amazon executives knew about the complex and confusing process and neglected to change it until April of this year. Former FTC chair William Kovacic.
2: It's certainly the FTC's per- perception that uh, Amazon is hardly alone in this, which again is why I think they're singling out the company uh, as, a, as an exemplar here, as a focal point for uh, a major lawsuit that uh, is, is seeking to change behavior across the industry.
11: In a statement, Amazon called the FTC's claims false on the facts and the law, saying, by design, we make it clear and simple for customers to both sign up for or cancel their Prime
2: membership. Before you get started on your Prime Day festivities, verify your Prime membership.
3: Anna Werner, CBS News. Many in the nation are bracing for the so-called child care cliff when pandemic era, child care subsidies run out later this year, W L K Y TV's Mark Vanderhoff reports from Kentucky.
4: The child care shortage is a big deal for working parents who are trying to juggle their careers and raising children. It's also a big deal for businesses who are struggling with the worker shortage. That's caused in part by the child care shortage. And if you have more than one child in
9: daycare, uh, child care between the age of six weeks and in five years, you're essentially paying the equivalent of a mortgage payment.
4: Paula Anderson says the pandemic era subsidies help child care centers stay afloat by raising wages up to 30%. But that money will run out by the end of this year.
9: As that money sunsets, uh, the, we call it the cliff. Uh, you know, the cliff is coming.
4: That means child care providers may have to make tough decisions such as whether to raise rates.
7: It's hard to even get a copay out of these parents. They don't even have the money to feed these children sometimes.
4: Margaret Commodore operates a child care center out of her home.
7: I value the relationships. The impact I have on their daily lives fills my heart with pure joy and happiness.
4: She urged lawmakers to do more to help family childcare homes, which are typically smaller than daycare centers. Last year, Louisville Metro Council eased zoning regulations to allow more home-based child care providers. 21 of 54 startup grants issued by the state last year were in Jefferson County. But even then, recruiting and retaining child care workers remains a challenge.
2: We're going to have to kick it up and we're going to have to go out and start directly recruiting uh, and make it it easy for this type of center to open.
4: That's likely to be a major focus for the Committee on Families and Children In the coming months,
3: there are alarming findings in a new report about pedestrian safety in the nation. CBS's Astrid Martinez reports those on foot had better be careful.
12: Pedestrian fatalities are on the rise, according to a new report by the Governor's Highway Safety Association.
0: The number of factors, unfortunately, have converged to create this deadly situation. In
12: 2022, drivers struck and killed more than 7,500 people walking in the U.S., the most in 41 years. Adam Snyder is with the GHSA.
0: That's 20 pedestrian deaths every single day. That's just unacceptable.
12: The report includes data from 49 states and Washington, D.C. It found the majority of the fatalities have occurred at night over the past few years.
0: Many parts of the country lack adequate infrastructure, even simple things like sidewalk and lightings that can help pedestrians. Our vehicles are getting larger and heavier, and that poses a greater danger for people on foot.
12: Snyder recommends several ways to reverse the trend, including designing safer roadways and community engagement with vulnerable populations. But he says educating drivers about their responsibility to yield to pedestrians would make the biggest impact of all.
3: Coming up, the plight of Ethiopia. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
2: This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup, brought to you by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Here's correspondent Allison Keyes.
3: In Ethiopia, millions are starving because of a pause in aid by the U.S. and UN after a massive theft of food and medical supplies. Desperate people are going door to door begging for food after grain and oil vanished in what U.S. officials say may be the biggest theft of food aid ever. In March, enough food was stolen to feed 134,000 people for a month, and some was found for sale in markets. The U.S. and U.N. have suspended their food aid, demanding that Ethiopia's government yield its control over the aid delivery system and guarantee that it won't be stolen by that nation's officials and military. The U.S. and aid to Tigray will return next month, but there are already reports of starvation deaths. It's been 16 months since Russian President Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, but CBS's Holly Williams reports now Russia is coming under attack.
13: 16 months after Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, now it's Russia that's coming under attack. The Freedom of Russia Legion – made up of Russian defectors and based inside Ukraine, has launched incursions into Southern Russia in recent weeks, sending local residents fleeing. How does this work? Are your guys gonna fight their way to Moscow and seize control of the Kremlin?
0: Yes, that's exactly the plan.
13: Ilya Ponomaryov says he's the Freedom of Russia Legion's political representative. He's a former member of the Russian Duma, or Parliament, who became an enemy of Vladimir Putin and now lives in exile. Do you think that Vladimir Putin's regime is going to collapse anytime soon?
0: No, I think it's, it's coming this year. This year? This year.
13: Why do you think that?
0: So we see the events, uh, how they are evolving in Russia. So I think that his regime would collapse.
13: Many others believe that's unlikely. Polls still show Putin has an approval rating of around 80%. But it's true that his military has suffered a string of humiliating failures in Ukraine, with more than 200,000 Russian casualties, according to the US and the freedom of Russia Legion is so worrying, Moscow has declared it a terrorist organization. In Ukraine in April, we met two of its young fighters, determined to stop Putin. Many people back in Russia would say that you're traitors. What would you say to them? It's our country that betrayed us, he told us, unleashing this war without asking anybody. Last month, the terror of war arrived in central Moscow. Drone attacks on residential streets in the Russian capital.
10: Now, the war has come back to Russia. The drone attacks, the shellings of border regions, that definitely starts, you know, making people think about something is going wrong.
13: Konstantin is a Russian political commentator who's critical of Putin and fled his country last year, fearing he'd be arrested. Are- he also believes Russia's leader has been critically weakened by a war that isn't going to plan.
10: He is in power for as long as he's confident and he shows that he's strong. So this is one of the reasons that I say this is the beginning of the end for him.
13: Ukraine has denied any involvement in those attacks within Russia. Now, we should tell you that the Freedom of Russia Legion has cooperated with another armed Russian group that reportedly has links to neo-Nazis. Ilya Ponomaryov justified that by saying they're his allies because they want to defeat Vladimir Putin. The big question is whether these attacks really pose a threat to Putin. I don't have a clear-cut answer for that, but they do show that some Russians are willing to risk everything to try to get rid of him.
3: This is Cataract Awareness Month. That's the eye condition that's the leading cause of vision loss in the nation. It can be cured by surgery. And CBS's Riley Carlson has the story of a man giving thousands of people their sight back.
8: High in this Himalayan valley, in a makeshift clinic, Dozens of people are lining up outside for their chance to see again. All of these patients have cataracts, a condition that causes the lens of the eye to slowly cloud over, blurring vision before leading to blindness. They're here for surgery to replace their cloudy lens with a clear artificial lens.
9: They need help, you know, really. You can see how uh, eye care is so difficult and how healthcare would be difficult, how education would be difficult.
8: Dr. Sanduk Ruit is running this clinic in South Asia. He's performed more than 130,000 operations. A tech multimillionaire is funding the surgeries as a way of giving back after spending time in jail for mail fraud. I think it's a crime for some people like us not to do more. In the US, the CDC estimates 20 million Americans older than 40 have cataract in one or both eyes. By age 65, more than 90 percent of people in the U.S. will develop cataracts. Dr. Ruit checks the results once his surgeries are done. I'm very happy. He says restoring people's sight never gets old.
9: It really energizes me and uh, recharges my battery.
8: The pair has now set a lofty goal. Half a million more surgeries in five years. Ah! Riley Carlson, CBS News, London.
3: Scientists overseas are trying to get ahead of the herd when it comes to cutting greenhouse gas emissions from livestock. At a sheep farm in the English countryside, there's a project underway to breed green sheep. CBS's Ian Lee.
10: British farmer Rob Hodgkins hopes to lead his flock to a greener pasture. You're looking for the needle in a haystack, or that, that single little black sheep amongst all the white ones. British scientists are helping with the hunt. What are you looking for exactly?
9: So what we're looking for is for um, animals that tend to be low methane emitters.
10: Professor Joanne Connington and her team hauled in a special methane machine to find out just how gassy each sheep is.
9: The animals go into a specific location for about 50 minutes. And there is a gas analyzer on the top, which monitors the amount of the methane
10: Scientists estimate there are about 1.2 billion sheep around the world and that they're releasing nearly 8 million tons of methane into the atmosphere every year. The carbon-cutting concept came from New Zealand, where researchers selected and bred the world's first low-methane-emitting sheep, slashing harmful emissions by 16%.
9: There is something about these animals that are better, more efficient at perhaps digesting their food and and growing faster.
10: For Rob, it's a long-term investment that he sees as a good-natured gamble. I'm sort of effectively taking a bet that in 10 years, some of the big retailers, supermarkets will be more interested in low-methane meat, if you like. Meat, Meat that has a lower carbon footprint. Betting the farm on the future of green sheep. Ian Lee, CBS News, Hertfordshire, England.
3: Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, extremist hate against the LGBTQ community. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
2: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
3: Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This week, the Anti-Defamation League and the advocacy group GLAD came out with a first-of-its-kind report, finding that extremism is driving anti-LGBTQ plus hate in the nation, and over a third of incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault target drag shows. This in a climate of increasing legislation, advocates say target that community and in a nation where bias-driven hate has been on the upswing. Sarah Moore at the ADL analyzes anti-LGBTQ plus extremism and joins us with more.
5: We tracked anti-LGBTQ plus incidents from June of 2022 to April 2023, and we found that there's been over 356 cases of harassment, vandalism, and assault all targeting the LGBTQ plus community. There's a lot we can say about it. um, But I think some kind of the the top line findings there are kind of first looking at who are actually conducting these instances of hate and harassment. And we found that approximately 50% of the incidents we tracked were perpetrated by individuals associated with known extremist groups.
3: When you say extremist groups, are we talking the Proud Boys or are there others out there?
5: Yes, there are many extremist groups in the U.S., unfortunately. The Proud Boys are one of the most active extremist groups in the anti-LGBTQ space. Um, however, we also tracked instances of acts perpetrated by people affiliated with like the White Lives Matter Network, the Active Club Network, some local neo-Nazi groups, um, and then also some folks that focus specifically on anti-LGBTQ plus extremism, like Gays Against Groomers.
3: Okay, I'm going to come back to the groomers question in a minute, because I think a lot of people don't know what that is. But most of these were targeting drag shows. Is that right?
5: We found that um, 138 of the 356 incidents were targeting drag shows and drag performers specifically. So that's just under 40% of our cases.
3: Okay, and now let's go back to the grooming. What does that mean sure. for people out there that don't understand the uh, conspiracy theory there?
5: Sure, so we refer to this as the grooming trope, and it's essentially an idea that has been spread by extremists and bigots in the anti-LGBTQ plus space that falsely claims that LGBTQ plus adults are somehow facilitating the sexual abuse of kids. Um, this is frequently referred to as, you know, using the slurs groomer or um, claiming that LGBTQ plus adults are pedophiles or are somehow engaging in sexual abuse, um, in other words.
3: Like some of the lawmakers that have been supporting legislation banning teaching about gender identity, say that they are protecting children and pulling books off the shelves that involve, you know, LGBTQ plus themes. They say they're protecting children. Can you respond to those?
5: Yeah, so when we're looking at the grooming trope, um, one of the kind of origins of this trope, at least in its modern incarnation, and this trope has been around for decades, um, but in, in this kind of modern incarnation of it, we can actually look back to, first of all, 2021 with the start of folks spreading these conspiracy theories online, like lips of TikTok. And then those same conversations getting picked up by lawmakers in 2022 in conversation with the Don't Say Gay bill down in Florida. So in that case, we actually saw the Florida press secretary at the time um, claiming that the Don't Say Gay bill uh, could also be referred to as the anti-grooming bill. So we saw that these allegations of grooming really started to pick up in mainstream discourse around the same time.
3: I'm curious, Sarah, does your report find that? Uh, LGBTQ plus people of color and trans people are are facing even more hate and extremism.
5: So our report doesn't distinguish by the type of victim. So we don't have like a specific category for looking at incidents involving trans persons. Um, however, we do know that transphobia is a large piece of this puzzle. In fact, many allegations around these grooming tropes and the idea that the LGBTQ plus community is somehow overly sexualized or inappropriate to be around children often comes from a place of transphobia as well. Um, and we do know that Anti-LGBTQ plus incidents also overlap with other forms of hate, including racism, as you mentioned. So we've seen that there have been a number of cases where the extremists that show up at the events are not only shouting slurs like groomer at LGBTQ plus adults, but are also shouting racist slurs to people of color in the audience as well.
3: Is this happening everywhere in the nation or just parts of the nation?
5: This is happening all over the nation. So we found that there have been incidents in 46 U.S. states in the District of Columbia, um, with Texas, Florida, New York and California being the states that had the most number of incidents, but are also the states with the highest population in the U.S.
3: I wonder if there are any thoughts on on why this seems to be getting so much worse over the last couple of years.
5: Yeah, it's kind of the million-dollar question. Um, You know, there are a lot of factors that go into this. I think the first answer to that is that anti-LGBTQ plus hate and extremism are not new. You know, these are phenomena that have been around for centuries. But in terms of why this particular moment, we've seen a resurgence in this type of hate. um, You know, there's a lot of different factors that we can point to. Like, we talked about this history with the grooming trope. Um, but we can also look at the rise in transphobia and transphobia being tri- being used as kind of a wedge issue to uh, draw the LGBTQ plus community apart in the form of some groups, like I mentioned, Gays Against groomers before, using transphobic rhetoric in order to kind of distinguish those who identify as lesbian, gay or bisexual from the rest of the LGBTQ plus community um, in order to kind of separate the issues of sexual orientation and gender identity um and you know there's been this rise in anti-lgbtq plus legislation as well that i think emboldens in some ways extremists who are going out and connecting some of the more violent attacks on the community
3: the head of glad was suggesting that this should be a wake-up call to lawmakers and community leaders to try and stop this what, what can people do
5: so we offer a number of kind of action steps at the end of our report. The first is if folks feel comfortable reporting the incident to law enforcement, if it is the case of, of a criminal act, they should absolutely do so. Um, we also offer a reporting form on ADL's website so that folks can receive help from our regional offices and get in touch with our GLAD partners as well. Um, and then in terms of kind of bigger picture items, we are having a call to action at the end of our report. Um, that is calling on folks to support a nonprofit security grant, um, which allows for LGBTQ plus centers as well as other centers focusing on maybe religious aspects or others of a nonprofit status um, to get protection that they need to safeguard themselves against attacks from extremists or bigots in this space.
3: I'm wondering, this is Pride Month, right? So there are a lot of events going on out there. Are you suggesting that people need to take precautions and protect themselves?
5: It's a tricky question. Um, You know, I think there is a feeling of fear in the LGBTQ plus community right now. We have been trying to kind of get this careful balance in releasing a report like this to show people the extent of the threat while also, you know, not trying to scare people away from participating in pride activities. Um, one thing that we do offer at ADL is we send out community alerts and law enforcement alerts when we are seeing threats from our side. Um, so that's kind of our attempt to help safeguard those who are participating in pride. Um, but, you know, I think folks are are reasonably, you um, a little bit more wary when they're participating in Pride events this year.
3: I feel like there have been so many trans women killed recently. I mean, I think most recently in Detroit, a couple of months ago, and people that showed up for her memorial service said that they were afraid to leave their homes. Is it that bad out there for everyone in this community?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, that feeling of fear is definitely there. And I hope that the stats that we've provided here are just kind of a snapshot of the ways in which these incidents are actually playing out across the country. Um, Obviously, every situation is a bit different. There are obviously going to be communities that have maybe a larger population of extremists in the surrounding regions that might be willing to come out and do some kind of anti-LGBTQ plus activity. Um, but, you know, I think it is fair to say that folks are reasonably cautious about participating openly in LGBTQ plus events right now, given the high levels of hate and extremism.
3: That's Sarah Moore at the Anti-Defamation League. Coming up, deep dish or some other kind? That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
2: On the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
3: I'm Allison Keyes. CBS Mornings exclusively revealed this year's glittering list of Kennedy Center honorees on Thursday. The awards celebrate icons in the performing arts for a lifetime of contributions to American culture. This year, they span generations and genres. His hits
1: energize the generation, dancing to the top of the charts. And time again, with his brothers in the band, the Bee Gees, leading him to become one of the most successful songwriters in history. Barry Gibb is a Kennedy Center honoree. She's mesmerized crowds with her lustrous soprano voice, performed classic operas to packed concert halls, sung on the biggest stages around the world. And in 2008, she became the first woman to solo headline the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Renee Fleming is a Kennedy Center honoree. I
3: order you to dance for me.
1: This queen redefined rap, landing her first major record deal in college before winning a Grammy for a song that stood up against sexism and violence against women. In the 90s, she launched a decades-long run of acting, starring in roles on the small. That bike is mine. Sorry, baby, it don't come with training wheels. And big screen. When you're good to mama. Queen Latifah is a Kennedy Center honoree. Billy Crystal. This funny man has been entertaining us for decades. I should be a woman. Starting with his groundbreaking role as Jody Dallas in the sitcom *Soap*, men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Then, in iconic Hollywood films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, step aside, kid. We're not. Yeah. He's graced the stages of Broadway, but to him, he says his greatest achievement is his family. Billy Crystal is a Kennedy Center honoree. Miss Dionne Warwick, from her church choir to the top of the Billboard charts. This legendary singer songwriter became the first African American solo female artist to win a Grammy. What
14: the world needs now is love,
1: sweet love, She also used her voice as an activist, taking on the AIDS epidemic and serving as ambassador of health under two presidents.
2: That's what are.
1: Dionne Warwick is a Kennedy Center honoree. Honored for their contributions to American culture, these are the 2023 Kennedy Center honorees.
3: The nation is celebrating Pride Month, and for someone with a very familiar voice for New Yorkers, that word has a very special meaning these days. WCBS-TV's Alice Gaynor explains.
0: The next, northbound number one to Van Cortlandt Park, 242nd Street, will be arriving in two minutes.
14: The person behind that familiar voice in the subway...
0: Please stand away from the platform edge.
14: ...and on the radio...
0: That's Shadow Traffic. I'm Bernie Wagonblast.
14: ...is now finding her true voice. Five months ago today, I
0: transitioned to living my life full-time as a woman.
14: Bernie Wagonblast says this is a lifelong dream.
0: When I was four years old, I remember wishing that I was a girl.
14: After switching clothes with a female neighbor as a child, she was told she couldn't do that. For decades, very few knew how Wagon Blast truly felt.
0: The woman I was dating, I knew that I was going to ask her to marry me, and I felt if I'm going to do that, she needs to know about this part of me.
14: Wagon Blast says 2017 was the turning point. It was a very innocent thing. I'd, you know, seen on some of the,
0: the late night comedy shows that they were showing pictures of NFL quarterbacks as women, and they were using an app that had just come out to do that.
14: After trying it herself,
0: this was the first time that I actually saw what I felt was a realistic representation of what I might look like.
14: A few years ago, she told her daughters and their husbands, and more recently, her grandchildren.
0: All of the people I shared this with, none of them had any inkling that this was something that I had been living with all of my life.
14: Now 66 years old, Wagon Blast, who still goes by Bernie, is happier than ever.
0: There was not an hour of my waking life, probably from when I was a little kid to when I socially transitioned, that I didn't think about this, at least in passing. Every hour, it was constantly there. And the acceptance and support that I've had, has just blown me away. So that I think is is probably the best part
14: of this wagon blast acknowledges. It's a process, though, and urges loved ones of trans people to educate themselves and reach out to support groups.
0: It's not wrong and it's not unusual to mourn the person that they knew above all, she says, let the person know that you love them, that this doesn't change anything.
3: Finally, I'm from Chicago, so if we're talking pizza, it's got to be stuffed deep dish, and there's got to be sausage. I also lived in New York, where the slices are so big you've got to fold them like tacos, and for me, there must be pepperoni. But some folk are enamored with Detroit-style pizza. That's just crazy talk. CVS's Deborah Rodriguez found some of the pies with their signature style in an unexpected place. Mmm, crispy crust, intensely flavorful sauce. You don't have to hoof
11: it all the way to the Motor City to sink your teeth into a sublime slice of Detroit-style pizza. Chef owner Charlie Webb churns out some of the best square pan pies in the world at Hudson and Packard in upstate New York.
15: Out of necessity, I was born and raised in Michigan and always kind of wanted to just have it available because, you know, through traveling in the military and stuff like that, you just could never find it. So I wanted to learn how to make it just to eat it.
11: entry came in third at the International Pizza Expo in Vegas in March, on the heels of last year's number two finish. What is it that makes yours so extra
15: delicious? There's a lot of time, love, and labor in the dough. It's very hands-on. It's a lengthy process. We don't take any shortcuts. It's got that crispy, crispy crust sort of all the way around. Well, a good Detroit should look like a brick but be as light as a feather. And about that tangy sauce, the nearby CIA grad believes. I would say a lot of New York-style pizzerias probably are aren't cooking their sauce more than it cooks on the pizza. So we start our sauce two hours before we open and we let that kind of simmer and it cooks all day and then tomorrow we add to that sauce so we're just continually adding to that. Maybe that's a little of the French sauce technique that we learned at the culinary. Mm. So good. What do you think? Mm -hmm. You get that nice crispy exterior but it's nice and pillowy on the inside and it's a good texturally just a good balance.
3: For the CBS News Weekend Roundup I'm Deborah Rodriguez in Poughkeepsie new york that's it for the weekend roundup thanks for listening we want to get your feedback send us your thoughts and story ideas to weekend roundup at cbsnews.com as always you can find the program online on apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast the weekend roundup is produced at the cbs news washington bureau sarah fishman is the technical supervisor and alan pang provides production assistance tara Lipinski is the executive producer